Future Blue, making green waves. Welcome to another Future Blue podcast. I'm Kerry Herford-Jones. And I'm Alexis Eyre. And Alexis, two very special guests today. They both have a common thread. You see what I did there? Linking the two of them together. I see what you did there. I think you'll work that out once uh, you start to listen in. So just to give a starting thing, this whole episode is going to be around design. It is around how... You start in design your products with sustainability at the core, at the very beginning when you start designing your products. So it's there from the very beginning. In particular, one of our experts here, little hint, is going to be talking much more around circular design. If you're not sure what circularity is, go and check out our Circular Economy podcast episode first, because that will give you some real background knowledge into this area. So let me give you a few more details about our first guest. He's a circularity leadership coach and consultant. He's worked for some of the biggest brands in the UK and actually globally, including Marks and Spencers, John Lewis and Adidas. He's been in the circular economy world for about 10 years now. And back in 2000, when he was back at school, which makes me feel really old, he was asked to give a vision of 20 years time, what the future would look like. And he actually said we would have rechargeable batteries and zero emission cars. That probably sounded so futuristic and yet how close are we to that now? So I'd really like to introduce Connor Hill. Connor, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to talk to us. Thank you very much for having me guys. Uh, so, Connor, we like to ask all our guests uh, to tell us in 30 seconds or less a little bit about themselves and just this sort of a, a thumbnail sketch, if you will, as to who they are. Sure thing. So I've been working in sustainability circular economy for around 10 years. I've been working with um, Adidas, John Lewis, Marks and Spencers on how they can really start to change the world, make a positive impact. Uh, and then more recently, uh, I set up my own consultancy focus really on the circular economy and working with brands and how they can start to change the future and, and make products in a very different way. And one thing you haven't mentioned is your time uh, with the Rugby World Cup back in 2011. Was that, was that a good year? <laughs> yeah, it was an incredible year. It was probably too good a first job out of university, being surrounded by all these amazing rugby players, organising <laughs> stadiums before tournaments. Yeah. Yeah, wow. fantastic. We're all green with envy, those of us who are connected with the rugby world. We're all <laughs> green with envy. Uh, so let's start the ball rolling, if we may. Let's look in a bit more detail about product design and what it looks like and what good design looks like. And can you give us some examples to put some texture to that, please? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, unfortunately, the way we've been designing and making products for the last 40, 50 years is everything, all materials have just got cheaper and cheaper. And the way consumers shop or they've been marketed to shop is very disposable. So unfortunately, you know, plastic gets cheaper and cheaper. Consumers want more and more newness. And the way they've been designed, unfortunately, they last a couple of years and then there's not many places they can go apart from landfill because it's mixes of plastics. It's, you know, plastic stuck to, to rubbers, to metals. And when they're stuck together with glue, it's impossible to get those things apart or even if you can it's it's very expensive so you know a lot of circular economy starts with the design uh, and if we design things in a way that they last a really long time then that's fantastic but we also need to think about how we design them so they can be repaired how they can be refurbished and when they eventually get to the very end of their life how can they be designed in a way so they can be disassembled so if it has to have plastic and metal in it 
that you can actually recycle the plastic and metal separately. So I think design is a hugely important part um, of us achieving the circular economy. I think it's become apparent to us while we've been running these podcasts uh, that actually it's really difficult to get some traction on some of these. These are some huge, enormous worldwide problems and issues that you're trying to address here. The one I'd like to pick on from that, all that design conversation is about electric toothbrushes because I think that's a really good example of something mm-hmm. that the product design is, in principle, is actually a really good one. It, it's a rechargeable battery. The point you're making is that unless the law comes in, which I think it is, to change the way it's created, nothing is going to change. Absolutely. I mean, whether it be toothbrushes or, or shavers, all these things, I think I've got three shavers um, at home just now. Two of them are broken. I've got no idea why I haven't recycled them or anything. <laughs> um, you just sort of hope maybe they'll be, have a repair service someday. But there's a little motor in there, there's a battery, it's plastic. And, you know, the battery in there actually has a value. But a lot of the way these um, devices are manufactured is the battery is in there and you can't get it out. Uh, and that's a design uh, that's been designed that way intentionally. You know, part of it was from a safety point of view, they don't want people opening them up and potentially having risk. But they're just being encapsulated by this huge piece of plastic. And no matter where that toothbrush ends up, it's very costly or almost impossible to get the battery out to recycle it. So when you look at the new circular economy action plan for Europe, it's really starting to think about how do we make sure these products that we're designing, you can get those batteries and other precious metals out of them so that they can be used again and again. So we don't need to keep mining everything virgin. Um, So I I do see that shift coming. Um, Europe is leading the way here. um, And hopefully other markets continue to, to really see that as the only way forward. Yeah, but why is it taking so long for companies to think differently about their design and and thinking about recycling in a much more meaningful way? It's a huge question, (laughs) a huge question. There's a lot of reasons for it. The design for obsolescence, um, it was just cheap to make things in a certain way for a long time. Um, A lot of products, the amount of times I had an electric bridge from Santa Claus um, at Christmas time and... Yeah, I mean, there was no thought of, oh, yeah, it's just a new year, get a new one, rather than actually, where are all the old ones? Why why don't we actually just invest in a better quality one that will last longer, rather than the 20 quid one that's in the the stocking filler calendar (laughs) area of the supermarket? So it's that whole mindset that the consumer just thinks, oh, it's a quick buy, I'm just going to get a new one rather than invest. But I I mean, I think a lot of it as well is, I, I know the fashion side of this quite well, and the investment into the recycling fiber to fiber technologies it just needs big investment and and it needs to come from government Hmm. because the scale of these plants that we need there's 100 billion products of even just clothing made each year and if we don't have yet really solid fiber to fiber recycling technology then where is all this stuff going it just moves to different countries and ends up in landfill so i think it needs big investment and that will help us to you really start the circular economy and that will help brands as well to know, right, we're going to make it this way because we know that the recycling technology is there at the other end. And you know, Apple do a point. great job at disassembly, but long way to go. Yeah. And, you know, you referenced Apple there. They're, they're starting to get the ball rolling. You're talking about governments making change, but there clearly are some companies that have committed 
already to doing this. Can you give us some examples and, and what they are doing that's so different? I mean, I think Vivo Barefoot is a really good example. They've gone after um, their repair model really quite hard recently with their Revivo. And then maybe a little bit biased, but having worked at Adidas for a long time, you get really close to what the R&D team are working on. Almost NASA scientist type stuff with the biotech materials they're looking at. So I think their innovation pipeline is very exciting. And what they're now doing with the Futurecraft loop shoe, they're so honest that it's far from perfect. You still need to use a lot of virgin material in there because the second generation shoe, the recycled content in there, it's, it's a low percentage now, but they understand that they're not going to be perfect anytime soon, mm. but they've got to make a start. And that's really where they are now. And I think people also see it, circular economy as the product, but it's so much around the community that has that product, how you stay engaged with them, how you do the logistics to get it back, how you have to clean the products. A lot of that hasn't really been developed yet. Yeah. And then how do you even recycle them? So I think... The product is one part, but we also need to look at these leaders out there who are developing beyond just the product and really creating that circular ecosystem these products also need to live within. There's been this huge resurgence in popular programs, um, thinking about the repair shop and people like that, where they're looking at products that were designed to last and were designed to be maintained. In, in a way, we're, all, we're almost going back in history here. We're going back to the roots of the, the product and the design right at the very beginning. This genuine ability to be able to upcycle and change the product is built in right at the very beginning. That's the point, isn't it? Absolutely. It's funny you say this because I described my role and my new business to my grandparents and they're like, this isn't a new business, Connor. <laughs> You're doing what we were doing during the war and for many years after. And right. then I look at my mum and she's talking about all the hand-me-down stuff yeah. and how the community did essentially car boots, but for baby stuff on like one time every couple of months. So this whole sharing economy stuff definitely isn't new. I think it's the difference is the scale we're now at. We've got one planet, but we pretend we've got three. So I think there's an element of innovation that's coming in there. But yeah, I would say at least half of it is actually just going back to what we did before yeah. rather than this new fancy innovation <laughs> tech stuff. What are the kind of things that companies can look into when they start the design of new products or the redesign of existing products? What, what should be on their list of things that they really need to be thinking about? I think one of the easiest sort of access points for brands to get into is looking at their quality standards. So, you know, most big retailers will have their quality um, teams. And I think it's having a solid review of how long are their products being tested to last? You know, how long are those dyes lasting? How long will it be bubbly? All those things. And I think that's what's been lost in this race to the bottom. It's just churning out as much as possible, as quick as possible. And just assume that a lot of people will wear it only a couple of times and then it might not be worn again. Yeah. So I feel like the quality is maybe slips for certain products out there and i think that's you know where people like marks and spencers are, are super strong they've always stuck to high quality products that will last a long time and I, I think you see that more and more from other brands and then you also see part of the the european circular economy action plan it's looking actually what happens with all those unsold products and um, so i think it's also important for brands to understand that part of the business model where does it go to and um, you see some great re e-commerce platforms coming up now 
Um, some of it's actually stuff that was never sold before, but they're you know rebranding it as re-commerce um, or lost stock. So I think you know Tala just did a really good one with Depop the other day, just okay. quite vocally saying yeah. we have all this leftover stuff from photo shoots, mm. uh, and we're going to sell it on, maybe not at full price. So I think brands can do those sort of two, three things first of all, and then really start to think about their overall circular system that they need to start to change into. You've referenced a number of times now about Europe leading the way and about the EU directive coming in. Let's just talk about those lawful changes because we said right at the very beginning of this podcast that it needs governmental input. It needs lawful changes to happen. Let's just talk about that because we've <laughs> the, the dear old toothbrush seems to be coming in for a bit of a hammering today, but I think that's a really good <laughs> example again that here we have a law effectively saying that batteries and packaging needs to be uh, changeable, needs to be able to, to to access it. You need to be able to take it out and take it apart. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's another area where you see, yes, government needs to do their thing. So we have something called the extended producer responsibility legislation. So if you buy a product, electrical product today, there is a, a cost that the brand pays for that, which essentially funds the recycling of those electrical devices. If it has a battery in it, there's a, a tax, an EPR tax yep. built into that, okay. as well as food packaging. So that's there, mm. but it needs to be across all products, even the green tick for using less packaging. Mm-hmm. So I think in the past, it's big packaging, big shelf visibility. Yeah. And I think if government can also bring that in through Europe legislation, there's so much unnecessary packaging. I think government has a role to play there as well. Yeah. It's often about the consumer driving this change, not just governmental leadership or company leadership, but it's also about the younger generation coming through and saying, no, we're not accepting this. We want change. We want to see change coming through. Yeah, definitely. And I think I see that in buying habits as well, changing. I saw a lot at Adidas being much closer to that. A younger consumer group and you know they really do see that they aspire to have that Burberry trench coat or whatever it might be yeah. but then they'll mix and match that with other items from other brands but they mm. see those big investments as investment pieces yeah and they buy from the premium brand because they know it will last but they're also smart that if they decide in two years time they no longer want it they know that they can sell that asset on and re- recoup a lot of that money back mm. And newness doesn't mean new anymore. Newness can be new to me, but 10 years old to someone else. So Mm. I think there's a lot to learn from younger generations. Yeah, that's a pretty fundamental shift. Let's talk a little bit about supply chains, because we, again, dug into these in, in some detail with a lot of these podcasts about the supply chain being appropriate for what we're trying to achieve at the front end. So how does a supply chain, in what way does it play a a role in how you actually go about designing a product, Connor? Yeah, huge role. I think increasingly, because you have, you know, the H&Ms and so many of the big players now saying by 2030, all the materials they use will either be circular or sustainable. Then, you know, everyone in the supply chain is suddenly like, we're not going to be a customer of these big brands in beyond 2030 unless we offer them these sorts of materials. Yeah. And what you also then sort of following up with that behind it is, okay, brands are now using uh, better materials. There's still a long way to go, but they're using better materials. 
And now they're starting to look at, okay, the industry average in, in fashion anyway is around 30% waste in the supply okay. chain. Okay. So if you imagine a t-shirt pattern cut out in a square, you're going to have some waste. So you want to aim to have pattern efficiency at 90% plus. So I think the supply chain has a big role in that to help brands to reduce that, but also start to offer them solutions for, okay, we've created 100,000 black cotton t-shirts we have your waste now in the past the brand buys a finished product but now the suppliers are starting to get smart and saying now we actually have a recycled cotton and um, partner down the road we can repurpose this we can use this um, in your next collection so that you've got 10 percent of the cotton in your next season's product uh, is made with your scraps okay. now and that just kind of makes business sense because yeah. those su suppliers are like, okay, we now have to get rid of your waste. Where do we do? That's generally a cost to them. But now you see the innovation, the supply chain happening that they can actually repurpose this. For t-shirts, it's really difficult because of the fiber length, et cetera. But if you put that into jumpers, you can actually get you know around 20% recycled costing in there without too many difficult, it's still a new space. Sure. But I think the supply chain has a responsibility there yeah. to support brands and um, to do these innovative parts, which reduces the, the demand on virgin uh, materials and resources. That's in itself, it always sounds so simple and so straightforward, but it's about making a start. Mm. You give a lot of talks, you do a lot of coaching and consultation and, and building these circular solutions and roadmaps with brands and change makers. What's the common theme? What's the sort of, if you like, humps in the road to getting to where they want to get to? Sure, really good question. I'd say every brand is different. Some brands, they, they obviously know the circular economy is there, but they don't know where to start. If it's better starting at design, the manufacturing, looking at new business models, looking at their e-commerce, um, sorting out the returns. So generally it's working with them to educate them first of all, get mm -hmm. everyone up to a good level playing field of how big the opportunity is. Uh, and then it's trying to work out, are they gonna focus on design or repair activations? Uh, and that's really dependent on the brand, the product they're selling and their consumer group. Um, so we try and work out something that's gonna work best for them in terms of like a hero product but then below that, we create a strategy which looks on at least two of seven areas um, which I work on with them. And we need to be a bit more realistic, perhaps, in what we can accomplish in the short term. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I, th I think I'm, a, I'm definitely a visionary thinker. And yeah, I think we do need to be realistic, but we also need to sell the dream, be very optimistic. Okay. I think one thing is which one of the platforms, um, Fashion for Goods, um, a great platform for finding and scouting the best startups out there within the fashion space, whether it be, uh, yeah, a full range from fiber to fiber recycling to different startups for repairs. They're really good at doing open houses and inviting all the brands to tune in and listen. And, and they're really working then with brands to scale these startups as fast as possible. So I think we just need to see a lot more of that, mm. more investors, you know, ready to, to invest in these startups and get them ramped up as quickly as possible because a lot of them are at lab base and they really need to get up to industrial scale you know in the next couple of years yeah i think so too and you said it on your linkedin profile that together you're helping people to recreate a new model of leadership and inspire change with a vision to ensure that all waste is reborn i think that's a pretty good battle 
honours to carry out there, a pretty good flag to wave. Yeah, absolutely. There's a hell of a lot of ways to make Reborn, so we can do it. And I think if everyone has that vision, then we'll start to think about things in a very different way. Well, thank you for doing what you do. And I think today you certainly inspired us to think about particularly the supply chain, but lots of other elements as well. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast as much as we've enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, I loved it. Good old Connor. You can't help but feel inspired by him, actually, really. It just makes you want to shout and just say, stop designing things that go to landfill. It's just, you know... We can do it. We can start designing stuff that can be pulled apart again and reused. But it just is going to take all of us to start rethinking the whole model and and starting from scratch in many respects. Absolutely. One of the things he made very clear was we can't just wait for regulation to come in. There needs to be an actual requirement and it may be driven by consumers for change. So you're not waiting to be told you have to do it, but actually the consumers will demand this change themselves. That's more powerful than anything. Yes, and I think also, as Connor said, there are policies coming in. So even if consumers don't demand it, you're going to be slammed by laws coming in saying that you're going to have to do it, otherwise you'll be penalised. So I think this is going to become a real battleground actually in the future. And I think it's designers are going to be hit from all angles on this to ensure that ultimately products do not end up in landfill i mean can you imagine a world where we just don't have landfill i mean it just it actually sounds dreamy but it's just an aspirational and and we we must be able to get there surely one would think in this day and age when we can do so many other things that we should be able to do that so we're talking now about products and there's one product particularly i was talking about my thread hooking and pulling all these things together. And the other thread for our second guest then is a technical manager from one of the very well-known rope producing companies, Marlow Ropes. Now, these guys have been around forever. They seem, I mean, in the marine industry, we know Marlow Ropes, don't we? Yeah. I mean, every boat's got yes. some Marlow Rope on it. So I was delighted to be able to get and line up uh, for our conversation today the technical manager of Marlow Ropes, Paul Dyer, who spent almost too much of his life, he said, designing ropes. But he's also used them as a climber and as a caver initially, and he's done a bit of sailing as well, which always endears him to our hearts. These days, he has a number of interesting projects on the go to do with designing sustainability and circularity into the product. Paul, thank you so much indeed for joining us today. It's good to be here. Paul, always the first question we'd like to ask all our guests is who you are and uh, one interesting thing about you. So uh, the floor is yours. Well, I am the technical manager of Marla Ropes. I have spent rather too much of my life designing ropes and using them as a climber and a caver initially and uh. a little bit of sailing as well. These days, I'm mostly office based at the factory in Hailsham. When I'm not here, I make and shoot English longbows. Goodness me. Okay, fantastic. Tensile strength and all sorts of things come into mind when you're doing that, oh, yeah. I suppose. Uh, even I can even use modern materials in there. So materials okay. like Dyneema can be used for yeah. strings, uh, but most of it is... Wow. And how long have you been doing that? For the last eight years now. Wow. Are you any good? Uh, I'd like to think so. My son's better, though. <laughs> You hit the target occasionally. Mostly in the green. <laughs> <laughs> I get that. Many of us can relate to that. 
Paul, thank you so much for joining us in a whole series of podcasts we're doing about sustainability. Marlow Ropes fits very well into the theme of what we're trying to achieve here, and which is to take a bit of a deeper look at some of the some of the products that we use, particularly, of course, in the marine industry. When did sustainability first become core to Marlow Ropes, and, and why did the change actually happen? Yeah, surprisingly, a long time ago, I think, around about two thousand and five, the company went through some some changes and was split into a, a big commercial marine business and, and a cordage business. At that time, the management changed okay. um, and we had a, a sort of uh, a, a rising up of, of newer, younger management. Mm. And uh, I think it was at that point that there was probably a change in direction. But at that point, it was very difficult to take it much further mm. because the, the supply chain and maybe even some of the customers weren't quite ready for it yet. That's quite a common theme here is about setting out the, the agenda for change, but then other people having to catch up with that. And you clearly had to redesign your ropes to fit in with that, that sustainable approach. How did that happen from a design perspective? Well, there's actually very little that needed to be changed in the products themselves. Um, the, the main thing is the, is the materials that we're using are from a different source. Mm. But the materials themselves have got very similar properties. So although some of our products have been redesigned, we have other ones that have taken on using the, the recycled polyester fibre. Okay. Uh, and it's, it's a, uh, literally a swapping materials over, retesting, and proving that the, the, the recycled material does work in exactly the same way. Mm. And, and in some of those examples, certifying to demonstrate that to the marketplace. And it was that simple. I said, make it sound simple. Obviously, there was a lot of <laughs> initial evaluation of the materials and things before we got to that step. Sure. But, but the products themselves didn't necessarily have to change a great deal. Because you're interesting here with the whole thing with ropes is going back a century or so, slightly before your and my time. But of course, they were starting with a very sustainable material. You know, talk about the hemp ropes and all those original ropes before manufactured ropes came onto the scene. There is the, the high watermark of sustainable ropes. Yeah, that's a very good point. It wasn't until the 1950s, really, that synthetic fibres became uh, widespread. Mm. And then it grew from there. One of the problems with the natural materials, of course, is that they is that they do biodegrade, which is a benefit from an environmental perspective. <laughs> but not so but, good um, from a long-term usage point of view. Yeah. No. I mean, we did look a little while ago at using biodegradable polymers. Um, okay. Before we went to the, the recycled materials we're using now, Yeah. we looked at the other end of the process first, um, looking at biodegradable polymers. And we found that the market was really rather reticent to use mm. them, uh, especially in the marine market where... If you're tying up your boat with a with a rope, you really want it to still be there when you get back. And, <laughs> we're old, um, we're old fashioned the, like that as boat owners. <laughs> yes, yeah, and the, the the market just wasn't willing to to look at or entertain uh, biodegradable materials for fear of that they'll biodegrade in use. Sure. Um, which is one of the reasons we went down a slightly different tack of putting a lot of effort into the using the recycled raw materials. And what did you learn about sustainability when you were redesigning the product, or in your case, redefining and, and re-evaluating where the product was going to go? I think the main thing we learned is that you can't do it alone. Yeah. Um, yeah. For us to do this, we needed a supply chain that was going to be able to provide the materials to use, the recycled materials. We can't produce those materials ourselves. We can't sure. process them until they've been turned into a fibre. Mm. So we needed that step in the supply chain. And likewise, we needed a marketplace that was, at this point in time, willing to pay a premium for it because the raw materials are still more expensive. Yeah. And in time, I think that will change. But, yeah. but we couldn't do this alone. 
Looking at that supply chain is one of the big core uh, conversations we've been having throughout this whole series. Uh, you make a good point there, actually, about the the whole supply chain coming on a stream, supporting you in, in your endeavours and where you wanted to go. But a lot of those suppliers themselves have had to take stock of the marketplace and, and reevaluate where they're going because consumer demand is changing. People are becoming much more aware, aren't they? Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, the some of the nature programs that we've seen on the TV that have mm. brought some of this to the fore has, has massively changed consumer perception. Yeah. And um, that is, is undoubtable, um, undeniable even. And until that perception changed, the market was perhaps lukewarm to the idea mm. of recycled materials. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. You talk there about the use of recycled materials now into the ropes and the, the premium clearly that goes with that. Were there other things you had to think about and other processes you had to go through when you were redesigning the ropes? There's two more sustainable materials that we've used or started to use recently. One of them is the recycled polyester, what we call the blue ocean fibre. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, a material that comes from plastic bottles. So right. it's the waste plastic bottles. They get ground, they get uh, repolymerized, they get extruded, and that produces a polyester fibre that we can use in place of standard polyester. Okay. The other area that's different is, is a fibre called Dyneema which comes from uh, DSM in Holland, and they've started producing their fibre using a bio-based feedstock, um, which allows them to produce a percentage of their fibre using uh, basically bioethanol from a biological source. Uh, I think it's waste from the forest industry. Okay. Um, So there's two different uh, materials there with two different sustainable sources, or more sustainable sources. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, we, we had to work with those... Less so with DSM, but with the, uh, the recycled polyester, we had to work with the supplier initially to, to test the fibre and make sure it was still going to do what we expected it to do. Yeah. And that we were still going to be able to process it the same as we normally do and that it was going to last as long as virgin polyester fibre. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that bottom line is it's got to be fit for purpose. And although your products are perhaps not fully circular yet, but they sound like they almost are, what kind of measures have you put in place for the design of ropes to help you get closer to the model you're actually aiming out to try and achieve? It's pretty challenging at the moment because there's just not enough rope waste to uh, interest a lot of recycling uh, organisations. Right. Um, okay. What we have done is, is we've launched a product into the industrial access market, uh, which is a uh, recycled polyester. Um, and we've made that rope plain white, right. with no markers in it at all. Okay. And what that means is that the without the coloured markers in there, that product is, theoretically, you could grind it up and put it into the same recycling stream as you started from. Uh, into the gotcha. polyester bottles. So without the uh, colour, without the extras, it's exactly pure. That. Yeah, exactly. Okay. With the coloured markers in it, which is what we see in most of the in the yachting industry, mm. the coloured markers and the colours in there are, are functional as well. You need to be able to identify which rope is which. <laughs> yeah, it so helps. <laughs> exactly. So we didn't take that step on the yachting industry, and um, for those reasons, the material can still be recycled. It is still polyester. Okay. Um, it can be recycled as polyester yeah the challenge though is finding somewhere that is prepared to take the small mm. volumes that are the end end result of uh, the yachting industry and are also able to recycle it with the colors in um yeah it's something Difficult. that again talking about the whole supply chain it's something that we're probably not going to solve on our own no but we are working with industry bodies to try and collaborate with our competitors and our customers mm. to try and build the volume that's necessary mm. to get a, a, a recycling stream that will that will work 
Yeah, and, and a lot of that depends on, as you have said so many times through this interview already, about collaborative working, about partners coming on board. One of the difficulties, speaking as somebody who's fairly well connected to see myself in terms of uh, where we operate from, a lot of the challenges I see talking to people in the end-user market is that it's still relatively new to a lot of us about what these different ropes, even as they were and as they are designed today, what they do. And what you're, I think what you're saying is, is don't just dump this stuff. Get it back into some sort of recycling system or at least get it analysed to see if it can be recycled. Would that be fair? That would be fair. We did some discussion with, with the customers and, and end users to try and work out what, what was already happening with the, end, with the ropes at the end of their life. Mm. What we discovered is that most ropes seem to be going on, certainly from, from amateur sailors and the like, they seem to be going on to a second life. Um, yeah. People rarely yeah. take off their ropes and simply throw them into the bin. True. They take off their ropes and they take them home and they will get stored in the garage for a while. They get might, might be used for something else. For yeah, don't tell up. the wife, we just pop and them in the washing the, machine. <coughs> yeah, and they, <laughs> and they go through this second life before they finally get uh, get disposed of. Yeah. Um, so there's, it's quite difficult sometimes to reach from us as a manufacturer to reach to the other end of the line where the ropes are scattered all over the world potentially in very small quantities. Yeah. So this, this sort mm. of end of use recycling is logistically quite challenging. And, and what would the benefits be? It seems obvious, but I need to ask the question, as far as you guys are concerned, what are the benefits to the company designing products that are more aligned to that approach? I think ultimately it, that's the way the industry is going to go. Yeah. Um, and in fact, industry general i think is going to head that way to a more sustainable model a more circular mm. economy mm. so for us i think one of the advantages that gives us is it puts us at the forefront of that mm. it gives us the advantage of being there first and it gives us the experience that goes with that because you know it is about leadership it is about setting out an agenda marla rips internationally recognized brand you spent decades building this brand value the name up it is about also being proud of the product as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, that's why we uh, we get involved with the the race teams and things like that because yeah. it gets the name out there. Yeah. And um, and the race teams as well. They are a lot of them are interested in sustainability. Some of the America's Cup contracts and see the sustainability <laughs> requirements. Yeah. Go with that. Yeah. Built in. We yeah, were talking the, to Eleventh Hour Racing, and, and they're saying we won't put any sponsorship in unless there is a not just a, a words on paper, but actually genuinely traceable and trackable sustainability built into the product, built into what they're doing. Yes, yeah, I understand that. With the Blue Ocean Yard, for instance, is GRS certified, so yeah. there is that, that yeah. traceability built in. When it comes to testing these newly designed products then, clearly there was always a long testing process, but what you're talking about here is adjusting the process rather than going back and having to redesign ropes, if you like. You're, you're putting in new product or uh, recycled product in. How, how difficult is it to get this sort of from paper, if you like, to actual usage? What sort of lead in time and how difficult is it to get these new ropes in, into place? Well, the process for us was, first of all, identifying the suppliers and then talking to them, getting samples of material. And then we would normally start with a very simple and put a bit of material through the factory. So yeah. we put it through the twisting machines, we'll put it through the braiding machines, mm. we'll produce a small rope, probably not a rope of a specification we'd actually end up selling, but we'd, sure. we'd make it and put it through each of the production processes. Okay. And then we can do some brake tests, elongation tests, mm. we can do uh, abrasion tests, um, we can even put that through some accelerated weathering and things like that. So we can get some confidence at the end of that this fibre is going to do what we think it's going to do. Sure. And we can compare it with, in the case of the, the Blue Ocean yarn, we can compare it with a standard 
high tensile polyester from virgin sources, from petrochemical sources. I mean, we can do the same, exactly the same process with the recycled material. Okay. And um, we put it through all the processes, we compare the results and we say, actually, we think this is going to do what it should be doing. Yeah. And yeah. then we would then design and, and, and produce a, a range of more commercially useful ropes. At mm. that point, we'd be buying a larger quantity of the materials. Sure. Uh, and then the next stage of the process is probably to get it out there into the industry and actually yeah. get someone a boat, get some feedback in use and make sure that we're all happy and that there's no nasty surprises in there. Yeah. Obviously, there wasn't in this case. And then you start developing and launching the final product. And clearly, as in any business, it's all about the tolerances. Does this work within the tolerances that you've set out? Yeah, I mean, for us, the tolerances that people are most interested in is normally brake load. Quite. And now, in the real world, that's actually probably not that important. Very few people break ropes through tensile failure. Mm. Most ropes actually fail through uh, abrasion and uh, essentially wearing out. Yeah, maybe okay. some UV degradation and things like that. Yeah. And and they're, 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 those things are very important to us because it, the longer the rope lasts, mm. from a sustainable point of view, obviously that's better. Yeah. The problem is it's, it's somewhat intangible. It's not very easy to put into a brochure. Did you have to change any of your supply chain to fit these new designs or did you just bring them on the journey with you then? No, the, the suppliers of the recycled yarn are different companies to the people that supplied the, the petrochemical-based materials. Mm. So in the case of the Blue Ocean Polyester, it was a completely different supply chain yeah. from us downwards. Yeah. In the case of the, the Biodyneema, it's, uh, it's a different method. They're using a process they call mass balancing. Okay. Um, so uh, if we commit to buying, let's say we say 50% of the material is recycled, it's actually a lot more than that. Oh, sorry, right. it's of, uh, of a bio-origin. Uh, then they will commit to putting 50% of their raw material in at the other end uh, as a bio-origin. Or, bio so the fibre that comes out is actually exactly the same fibre from the same supplier. It's gotcha. just the origin of the raw materials. I think one thing that we're also interested in with Marlow Ropes is whilst that is what you are named, known for and that is what you produce, there is also the packaging that you've been looking at. And how's, how's that been going? Because you have been taking a, a root and branch review of all of your production and all your, all your products, haven't you? That's very true. We've been in a lucky position in that we've had quite sustainable packaging for a very long time. Mm. Um, the the reels that we use are wooden flanges or cardboard yeah. flanges with steel centres. Yeah. And those are recyclable at source. Okay. Um, so, uh, and so they there's anywhere almost will take cardboard and, and metal and things like that. So there's no excuse for not recycling them. And that's been the case yeah. for years. Um, the bits that have proven to be more challenging to us are things like the uh, the accessories ranges which are often sold in plastic, sealed plastic tubes and things like that. Right. Um, what we found there is that, obviously, replacing card with FSC certified card and things is quite straightforward. Yep. The plastic itself was difficult, but we did find a material that has a, a bio, an origin, I think it's uh, sugar-based, sugar-starch-based. Right. I'm not 100% sure on that because I okay. didn't source that. Yep. But, it's a, but it's a bio-origin plastic tube. It can be sealed up and, and used as usual. Yeah, that was more a challenging one. Yeah, I can imagine when you start to look at everything you produce and everything that's got your name on it and associated with it, where do you start? Where do you stop? I mean, it goes through every single layer of the business, doesn't it? It does, yes. Yeah, and, all the way down to LED lights. And, you know, you guys are, are well known for doing so many other things. You talk about, I don't know, splicing tools. You talk about whipping twine. You know, you guys are literally anything to do with ropes. You're all over it. Yeah, we try to have a complete range uh, so that 
we can supply everything that's needed. But yeah, as you say, it was the packaging for some of those components mm. that was was challenging. Mm. I can imagine for the ropes themselves. Yeah, was less so. And, <laughs> and there's, there's steps that we can go further. That that you know, going back to you, you hinted earlier about the, the sort of history and how our ropes used to be um, yes. uh, natural fiber. They also used to be supplied as coils. And yeah, then yeah. You, you supply ropes as coils, you can get a, do away with the packaging. packaging completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are we going to but, we're reinventing the wheel? We're going backwards. Yeah. There's nothing new in the world of ropes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, my suspicion is that the market's not quite ready for having everything supplied as coils yet because you need to be able to handle it at the other end. But sure. maybe one day, maybe well, one day, that's where we'll go. No packaging you know, at all. We talked a lot here today and it's been really fascinating. And I thank you for everything you've contributed, Paul. But we're talking here about almost sometimes, and this again, a common theme uh, appearing in a lot of these podcasts, is we're reinventing the past. We're learning the lessons from the past to bring them back into the future to become that more sustainable culture that people are starting to demand more and more. And I think, fair play to you guys, you clearly were early adopters of it. And it's interesting to hear now the journey you've gone on. So let me put you into the DeLorean time machine then, Paul, and take you forward 10 years. What's your industry? What's that business going to look like in your estimation? In 10 years' time, I suspect that we will have by then have changed all of our standard yarns Mm. to a a non petrochemical source yeah so all of the polyester could be recycled polyester Mm. all of the polyethylenes and high modulus polyethylenes and things could be from um bioethanol base and packaging recyclable recycled and recyclable packaging will be the norm circular economy there um I think the factory itself will probably be running on more renewable energy Paul absolute pleasure talking to you today yeah it's been good to talk great to meet up with Paul Dyer there the technical manager of Marlow Ropes who has made it clear they are committed to actually trying everything they possibly can to make their products fit for purpose for the future. So, as you said right at the beginning of that podcast, Alexis, instead of keep going back to the, well, let's try and recycle it or let's try and upcycle it, but let's build in and future-proof these products as early as we possibly can. Yes, absolutely. And it's really nice to see... And to see the transparency of Marlow Ropes, that they admit that they're not the full way there yet. But my God, are they trying? And I, I just think that's the whole thing around this. They're trying to get there. They know what their ultimate goal is. So it's just sort of rather wonderful story. And I think the other thing as well that sort of comes out of this is how key it is that communication sits within that. You might have a circular product, but you've also got to make sure that all your customers are in line with you as well and that they actually believe in what you do and understand that you need to give these ropes back in order for the circularity to be hit so i think that's quite an interesting point yeah it is you need to have your customers with you on the journey they need to not only buy into it in terms of the products but buy into then recycling and upcycling their their, their products as well and who didn't know i didn't know anything about the english longbow uh paul dyer is obviously the man to go to if you want to know uh, about firing uh, and shooting english longbows Brilliant guests, as always, Alexis. I, I, I continue to be in awe of <laughs> where you find all these people in your big black book. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> this has been another Future Blue podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And as we keep saying, please give us feedback. Tell us what you think. Tell us where you are in your journeys. We just really want to hear from you. We do indeed. I'm Kerry Herford-Jones. And I'm Alexis Sayre. And keep making green waves. Future Blue, making green waves. Directed by Alexis Eyre and produced by Kerry Herford-Jones.